If you're joining us for the first time, you came at the perfect time because last week we finished our series in the book of Esther. Today we're beginning a new series through the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. And we're doing so at a perfect time as we enter this Advent series, um, looking at good news of great joy, the birth of Jesus that is coming. And so turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. Um, And we're going to go ahead and read that, and then we will pray this morning and jump into our text. We're going to be reading just the first 25 verses this morning. I wasn't so bold as to think we could get through 80 verses, so uh, sometimes I have a problem just getting through eight verses on a Sunday morning. So we'll try and tackle 25 this morning, and we'll see how we do. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, here's what we read. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus that you may know the certainty of the things in which you were instructed. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all his commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn away many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day those things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. 
And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Now after, these, after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Let's pray this morning. Lord, as we come before your word in a season as we draw our eyes towards the birth of your son, God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with that same expectant hope and celebration. God, that this season would be more than gifts and parties and decorations, but that it would be marked by gratitude, thankfulness, celebration and praise for the God who came to dwell among us, Emmanuel. God, we pray as we look at your word this morning, as we begin to dive into the words of Luke to begin to draw our eyes towards you and the preparation of your son coming to earth. God, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. That you would instruct us, Lord, that you would correct us. God, that we'd be a people this morning with ears to hear. With hearts that have good soil that receive your word and bear much fruit. God, we pray that we would truly leave here today understanding in a greater way those good tidings of great joy that came with the appearance of your Son. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning and you want to write down a title, you can write this down, Hope for the hopeless. That's what we're going to be seeing this morning. Hope for the hopeless. But as we begin, a few notes around this gospel of Luke that we're reading this morning. Luke is the longest gospel and the longest New Testament book that we have within our Bible when it comes to the mere counting of words. In fact, it has over a thousand words more than any other New Testament book. And the close second to it is Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. Luke is the only Gentile, non-Jew author that we have in the New Testament, and he's writing specifically with Gentiles in mind. Whereas the Gospel of Matthew might emphasize more of the culture and the details that would appeal to a Jew, Luke is much more writing a gospel with all people in mind. We'll see this in the way that he writes very favorably and graciously of those who are outcasts, and even women within his gospel are elevated and given more recognition in different key moments within Scripture. Luke was referred to by Paul as the beloved physician 
in Colossians 4, and he was a companion of Paul as we read partway through Acts in his missionary journeys. And we believe because we're given that description that he was a physician, that Luke was most likely at some point in his life a slave. And that is because in biblical times, the vast majority of physicians were in fact slaves. That each ruler and man of authority, he would have his own slave physician that was employed by him. That was available at his beck and call for whatever his physical needs may be. And so we assume that perhaps the man that Luke is writing this gospel letter to, this, this great Theophilus, may have in fact been the man that he was a slave physician to at some point. Now, it's speculation. We can't know for sure um, because very little is known about this man, Theophilus. We know he had some place of authority, perhaps a Roman authority of some sort, What we do know is um, some love what we know about him, which is his name, Theophilus, which means lover of God, Theo, Theos, God, and Phil, where we get phileo, love. His name means lover of God. And so some have even taken this a step further to say, well, his name, that title, lover of God, does that not apply to all who are lovers of God? And it is true that, that although Luke is specifically writing to this one man, that it does apply to all people and lovers of God for sure. But we believe that this was specifically a leader of some sort. And so some love him just for his name alone, that it seems he's a believer that Luke is writing to encourage and give facts to support their belief. And also that his name alone speaks of a man who loves God. Others, though, can't stand the guy. And the reason being is because they, they read his name and they just think, man, this is the awfulest person that's ever been written to. I'm sorry, it's, it's a dad joke. It's, I know, Theophilist. It's put it in your back pocket, you know, save it for Christmas. But what we know is that Luke is writing with a specific purpose in mind. Right out the gate, as he begins this letter, he makes it very clear how he's writing this letter, with what authority he has to write all of these things, and also what is the purpose of him writing all of these things. He makes very clear that he himself is not an eyewitness to all of these things. He's not writing as one of the men that walked with Jesus through all of this and saw these things take place. He's writing as more of what we could say is an investigative journalist, a man who's interviewing all of the eyewitnesses and has taken careful account as a doctor, a man of great detail. He's taken a careful note of the order and the details of all that has taken place. And his purpose is clear in verse 4 when he says that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. His goal is to bring a footing to faith, to give a foundation and an accurate account of all that has happened, that it might prove to strengthen and encourage Theophilus and all those who have believed, that what they've believed is true and sure and has been tested and proven. He's showing who Jesus was, the Son of Man, a title he likes to use, the perfect man. 
He gives great detail to how Jesus felt, the way that he acted, the message he brought, and the people for whom he came to save, which he will spend a lot of time emphasizing was not only to the Jews, but the Gentiles, the outcasts, the prodigals. He makes very clear, even from the beginning of his gospel, that though this letter was written to Theophilus, it is a message for all people. And he'll demonstrate this in the way he speaks so graciously of all people, and even shares specific parables unique to his gospel, like the prodigal son, or like this this path on the road to Emmaus following the resurrection of Jesus. I love how one Bible commentator, David Guzik, summarizes these first four verses that we read. Here's what he says. The first four verses of Luke's gospel are one sentence in the original Greek. They are written in refined, academic, classical style. But then, for the rest of the gospel, Luke didn't use the language of the scholars, but of the common man, the language of the village and the street. Through this, Luke said to us, this account has all the proper academic and scholarly credentials, but it is written for the man on the street. Luke wrote so that people would understand Jesus, not so that they would admire his brain and literary skill. And I love that, that from from the get-go, as Luke begins, he's, he's qualifying himself as a valid writer of this gospel, he's showing his ability to write in order and his knowledge, his intellect, but he's also making it clear that he wants this to be understandable for any and every person that might read it. It's the gospel for all people in all places. And he's going to make an important note of a couple ways that he will show that. He's going to give a genealogy that doesn't just go back to Abraham. It goes all the way back to Adam, the very first man that we all come from, not just the Jews' lineage. And he's going to make it a point to continue to point the gospel for the Gentile as well as the Jew. As he finishes his introduction, he gives us the timeline for the beginning The context we have here in verse 5, that it was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, that were given our main character, Zacharias. It's in the days of King Herod, known as Herod the Great, which is ironic because he was far from great. He's at the end of a long and terrible reign. And he's a man who is known for his spectacular building programs, certainly, but also his paranoid cruelty, which actually led to him not only killing his own wife, but executing his three sons as well, out of a fear that they were going to try and overthrow him, take his throne. And it's during the times of this Herod the Great that we come into our text that we look at a, a series we're calling Good Tidings of Great Joy, that we're looking at a message this morning we're calling Hope for the Hopeless. And you're thinking, surely if I was going to pick a leader and a ruler at that time with a, with a setting like that, I would not pick Herod the Great. 
I would choose a godly man. I would choose a kind man, a generous man, a servant. Not a fearful, wicked ruler who has his own family killed out of fear that they might overthrow him. But it is during this trying time under such a wicked leader, when all hope seems but lost, that we see God move in an incredible way. We're given our main character, Zacharias, brought to the center stage. And he's a common man. He's a certain priest. And although that may stand out to us as something unique and special, we have to realize that he's one of roughly 18 to 20,000 priests at this time. His name, and this is important to note, means God remembers or Jehovah has remembered. And it is in this man's life, as we're told here in a moment, this elderly man's life, just a certain priest among thousands, that God is about to do something extraordinary. We're told that this man, Zacharias, of the division of Abijah, has a wife of the daughters of Aaron whose name is Elizabeth. And then we're given an important note. They're both righteous before God, walking in all his commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Now, you have to take yourself out of our Western culture and place yourself in the time and culture they lived in to understand that to be childless in this time was a social disgrace. It was a mark of shame that would have followed them all their days. Because look at how highly Scripture speaks to children. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. It was seen as a great blessing and an honor with the more children that God had given you. And in fact, many of them believed at this time to be childless, to be barren, was a mark of a curse or shame upon your family. That clearly, somewhere along your line, someone was in a lot of trouble and had done a lot of sinning and a lot of evil and a lot of wickedness. And you're paying the price for that. And so that's why your family is barren. That's why you have no children. And this couple are well advanced in years. They're not newlyweds that are trying to have their first child and it's taken a little while. They're well advanced in years coming towards the end of their lives and they have never been able to have children. A priest, a man who knows the scriptures well and goes to the temple each year to be a part of this sacrifice that takes place. And yet each and every year he goes as a childless man. A man that is no doubt aware of the stories that are being told of him, of the the whispers behind closed doors, of all the assumptions about why him and his wife don't have any children. Being childless was not only a shameful state to be, it was a dangerous place to be. Realize in their culture, there was no 401k waiting for him. There's no social security to cash in later. 
There's no retirement home that they already have a plan to go stay at where they can provide housing and food for them. Your children were the ones who would take care of you. That was your security as you became older and more frail and were unable to provide and care for yourself. It was your children who would bring you in and provide for you and feed you and care for you. And so we've got a couple now who not only are feeling the shame and disgrace of the culture around them for being childless, but as they look towards their future, no doubt there's a bit of anxiety and fear as they look towards a future without any real security or help as they continue to grow older. You see, unlike the Levites, which we read about in Numbers 8, who retired at the age of 50 from their practice as a priest, Zacharias was not under this law. Most biblical scholars put him somewhere between 50 and 70. He's beyond the age of when those of the Levites would have retired. And yet he's continuing to work and continuing to move forward. And we see a principle here as we read about the description of how this couple was living that's important for us to learn from this morning. And that is that God uses our physical disabilities to demonstrate his spiritual capabilities. God uses our physical disabilities to demonstrate his spiritual capabilities. And this isn't unique to the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth. This is something you'll see all throughout Scripture. When you have a man like Paul, who's shipwrecked on an island and then bit by a poisonous snake on Malta, and the people just sit back to watch because they think he's going to die, and he shakes it off in the fire, and when he doesn't die, what has God just done? God has used a situation that seemed to be his disadvantage and has used it as an opportunity to show God's power and strength with this man and give him an audience before the authorities there. We see it with Moses in the Old Testament when God says, I'm going to use you to bring my children out of Egypt. And, and Moses says, so I'm, I'm not good at speaking. This whole public speaking thing, God, it's not really my thing. I'm going to slur my words. I can't really speak well, so ah, you can't use me. And God says, excuse me, who made the tongue? I can use anybody at any time. He is the I am, the all-sufficient one. God's going to work in light of it, in spite of it. The death of Lazarus. I don't think we could mention any more physical disability than being dead, okay? So for those of you that say, but you don't know my disability today, Lucas, are you alive? You've got more going for you than Lazarus did in the tomb, okay? He was dead, and yet God was going to use that moment to show himself stronger than the grave, to bring him back to life. What about David and Goliath when the odds are stacked against him? He's not a mighty warrior. He's not a soldier. He doesn't come with these great weapons and tactics, but he comes with the Lord on his side, and God can bring a victory. What about a paralyzed man who's lowered into the room with Jesus because he can't even get there on his own? And because there's so many crowds, they can't even approach Jesus except through breaking up the roof and lowering him down. And what about here in our text, an old ordinary man with an elderly barren wife in the midst of a season of silence from God under the rule of a wicked king? 
What do we see here when we read that description? We see a list of disabilities, a list of obstacles, and a list of hindrances. Not the kind of situation and story that inspires much hope. But what does God see here? An opportunity for him to demonstrate his spiritual authority and capability beyond what we could see or do. The God who's able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond. And what looks like this man, Zacharias's wasteland, is actually going to prove to be his promised land. In a story that we would have already written off, God is just getting started and laying the stage. And what I love about the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth here is not only the hope it's going to produce within this couple as God shows up and provides a child, but the hope this story can produce in others as well, like us today as we read it. Imagine with me for a moment if they weren't elderly, if Elizabeth wasn't barren, if they didn't live under a wicked ruler, and if there wasn't a season of silence where hundreds of years they have not heard from God. What if instead they were a young, fruitful, lively couple Not ordinary, they're famous. Everybody knows their names. They're in a beautiful home. They have an incredible retirement and riches in abundance. And they're under a godly ruler who loves the Lord and rules in a way that honors the Lord and is according to his scripture. What would we do when we read that story? Well, for most of us who are not famous and wealthy, we wouldn't be able to relate we look at it and say, well, of course God used them. I mean, look at that. Look at all the things they have going for them. We give credit to good genes and not a good God. We'd conclude that, well, if I had those same circumstances, if I had that same setup, sure, then that could probably happen for me as well, but I don't. But when we see their story for what it is, warts and all, We're inspired by a good outcome through so much adversity. And it begins to inspire hope within each and every one of us to say, well, if God could work through that, surely he can work in my situation as well. Right? It's the classic underdog story. It's why we all love movies like Rudy and Cinderella Story. We love seeing the one that's down and out, that has no hope, rise above it all and find victory in the end. We can relate, we can sympathize, and we can gain inspiration to press on in light of our current adversity. And the same is true in the midst of this couple we read here, and it's important for each one of us to realize today. Because often, the tools the enemy uses to put out our fire is the very fuel God will use to set our lives aflame. The enemy is going to tell you, you're too weak. And God is going to remind you, though, I am strong, and my power is made perfect in weakness. The enemy will tell you your damaged goods, but God would tell you my grace is sufficient for you. There is redemption for your mistakes and no condemnation in Christ Jesus. 
The enemy would tell you, you have nothing to offer. Jesus would tell you, I have paid it all. It is finished. I don't need your stuff. I want your heart. The enemy would say, this is terrible timing. You've missed your chance. It's time to give up and move on. The Lord would say to you, this is the day I have made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Whose voice are you listening to today? Because when we look at the surface of Zacharias and Elizabeth's story, it's easy to lose hope and become discouraged. In fact, we're amazed when we read about them continuing to be faithful to the Lord and serve Him all these years. But when we're listening to the voice of God and allowing Him to define their situation, we find hope and encouragement even against all odds. God will take your weaknesses and in turn show his strength. He can take all of the pain you've experienced and give it a purpose in what he's doing so that we might be able to boldly declare that the tool the enemy meant to destroy me turned out to be my gateway to victory. That the thing that the enemy thought would be my demise has actually turned out to produce a greater hope in me than I knew was possible Because God intervened. Because God showed up. And though this hopeful moment we're going to see comes as a total surprise and a shock to Zacharias and Elizabeth, it's been long prepared by the God who before they had even ever met had had a plan. How do we know this I've told you already that Zacharias' name means Jehovah had remembered or God remembers. What's beautiful is when you understand that Elizabeth's name means his oath or God of the oath. And so as this couple came together in a beautiful union of marriage and the two became one flesh and those names melded together, we get this beautiful promise of God that God remembers his oath. That God remembers his promises. And their names, unified together, carried a prophetic word that would break the silence of the Old Testament and usher in a new redemptive work of God in the beginning of the New Testament. It was written in their names before they ever knew each other. God had a plan. God was at work, and God remembers his promises, and he's faithful to complete them. Well, one thing is very clear in our text as we read about how this couple carries themselves and the way they live. It's that Zacharias and Elizabeth do not idolize children or their own plans above God's. Do not make your children your idol. They will either crumble under the pressure that you put on them or they will rebel against it altogether. If you truly love your children, worship Jesus and not them. Make much of Jesus in your home and not them. If you want to know how you're doing in this area, am I truly worshiping and, and, and focusing on the Lord or my children? Am I truly a person who's faithful even when I don't get what I want, even when my prayers aren't answered according to my will? Look at your life. 
How are you living when you face disappointment? How's your prayer life when things aren't going your way? Is your hope intact when things around you seem to crumble? When the leadership around you seems to get more and more wicked? When day after day continues to move forward and you don't see the promises of God coming to fruition? Are you still faithful to seek Him? Are you still consistent to praise Him? Look at how it describes Zacharias and Elizabeth in the midst of difficult times. Having lived a full life without ever having the blessing of kids, it says that they were righteous before God, it says that they walked in all His commands, and it says that they were blameless. That's a couple whose faithfulness to the Lord is not dependent on their circumstances. It's a couple who gets up each and every day and dies to themselves and take up, takes up their cross. A couple like Paul who recognize I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. A couple who understand even if it doesn't go my way, I'm going to continue to follow his way. And we'll see that same faithfulness to God repeated in their son, John the Baptist. As they set the tone in their home, as they lead by example in pursuing Jesus, being faithful to the commandments of God, we will see John follow in those very footsteps. What a beautiful legacy they've led. But we're told the time has come where Zacharias is going to go with his division of priests to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, to offer incense. And they would go twice a year from Sabbath to Sabbath, as each division had their time. And we read that his lot falls to burn incense. And you need to understand what a big deal that is. Okay, this wasn't something that every six months when they go, everybody's doing this. In fact, this was such a rare occurrence, it would happen once in your lifetime or perhaps not at all. That's how rare it was that you got to be the one in Jerusalem at the temple that got to offer the incense to be burned at the altar. Up to this point in his life, and he's well advanced in years, he's come twice a year, and every single year when the lot falls, it hasn't fallen on him. It's been someone else every time, and yet there's this great expectation as you approach Jerusalem and as you get to the temple that you hope and you pray that maybe this is my time. Maybe this time my lot will fall and I will get the incredible honor of getting to enter in and burn the incense at the altar. And yet he's never been called. With a one in 18 to 20,000 chance of ever getting called. He's well advanced in years and no doubt by this point he's thinking, the odds aren't in my favor. The number of years I have left, the number of times it hasn't been me, it's probably not going to happen. Perhaps as he approaches Jerusalem, he's just kind of coming to grips with that reality. Maybe not me. I mean, every time since as he's gone, what does he continue to hear as the lot falls? Loser, loser, 
loser, right? Like you did not win. It is not you. You are not chosen. It's kind of like every Charger fan in the audience today, right? That's me. I'm one of them. Every Sunday, I just, I approach the TV knowing the odds of us winning today. It, it feels like one in 20,000. In fact, I've, I'm, I'm putting in my will a, a special request. I want the, the whole Charger football team to lower me into my grave so they can let me down one last time, right? <laughs> I'm just, it's a tough, tough place to be as a fan of the Chargers. But, but anyway, back to Zacharias. This is the context he approaches Jerusalem with. But this time was different. This time his opportunity came. And it reminds me of a verse in Proverbs 24, 6, when it says, A righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. I see Zacharias as this faithful guy who just never gives up. He's got some spiritual grit to him, something we could learn from. That no matter how many times it's not him that's chosen, no matter how many obstacles it seems are in his way, no matter how many things in life have not gone according to plan, no matter how far from the perfect cookie-cutter family he is, he just keeps moving forward and being faithful to the Lord. Man, how many of us, if we just had one of these details that are described in his life, in our own life, would begin to question the Lord's goodness, would begin to falter in our walk. And yet, even when all the odds are against him, he's just a faithful man that continues to move forward. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you feel like no matter how many times you try, no matter how long you've followed the Lord, you just keep failing. Things just continue to not go the way you expected them to. And the place you find yourself today is so far from where you thought you'd be at this time. Maybe you've experienced so much shame from failing that you've just resolved to stop trying altogether. It's becoming embarrassing. You look at the track record and you see no real reason to keep going on. In fact, as you add it all up, You've just concluded it's easier for you just to count your losses and abandon any and all hope of finding victory over that sin or finding a new opportunity to be used by God or a fresh revelation of his glory. Whatever it may be, you've hit that wall too many times. Can I encourage you based on the authority of scripture this morning, keep going. Don't stop. You've come too far. You've grown too much. God is too good, and your potential in him is far too great to give up now. He's worthy of every step and every breath and every move you have in your existence. Don't give him less than that. Be faithful. Press on. When you fail, repent, grow, move forward, but don't give up. As Paul exhorts us in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart.
Zacharias pressed on. In a moment that many would lose heart. He didn't grow weary in doing good before the Lord. And in this moment, he gets to reap the beautiful benefit of that. As the Lord shows up. And he's chosen. And what did this process look like as the lot fell on Zacharias to offer the incense? The priest would go in to the temple. They would lay incense and sprinkle it on the hot coals. They would say a prayer of intercession first for themselves and then for all the people. And then they would come out of the temple and say a blessing over the people. It would be the blessing of Aaron found in Numbers chapter 6, that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, biblically speaking, incense represents prayer. It's the prayers going up to the Lord. Revelation talks about a big bowl that is filled with the prayers of God's people. And then it ascends to him as a sweet-smelling aroma. And it's in this moment as Zacharias goes into the temple and he, he approaches those hot coals with the incense to sprinkle on top of it that an angel of the Lord appears to him in the room. Now you have to realize not only was this a miraculous and incredible moment for Zacharias, but for all the people, this is an incredible moment because the Lord up to this point had been silent to the people for 400 years since the book of Malachi. It's been 400 years with, with no word from the Lord. The last miracle in Scripture we have noted took place 800 years prior to this in the life of Elijah and Elisha. And there hasn't been an appearance of an angel for at least 500 years when there was that fourth man in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And yet it's in this moment that Zacharias has been chosen and he offers this prayer to the Lord that God shows up and speaks. It's not coincidence that this beautiful revelation of God and this move of revival that will take place all happens at a moment of prayer. You want to see God work in your life? Be a person of prayer. We want to see God bring about a revival in our nation. It's going to happen when his people are praying. And here Zacharias enters that room offers the incense, says a prayer, and an angel appears, and words of hope are found in the midst of heartache. And the first thing the angel does as he calms him, which every angel has to do because people are terrified when an angel appears, the next thing the angel says to him is, your prayer is heard. I love that the first priority of this angel is to let Zacharias know that his prayers were not in vain. That God's been listening. That God knows what you're asking for. That that he's heard your prayers all of these years. The decades that you've been praying, Zacharias, God's heard. Don't let the enemy fool you into believing that God is not listening. 
God has three answers to our prayers, yes, no, and wait. And Zacharias has been hearing the word wait for a long time. I'm sure many times he had believed it was probably just a no. But today the answer was yes. I wonder what prayers have you had that after years of praying them, you've stopped praying? Because you prayed for so long, it just became painful to continue to pray anymore. You've prayed so faithfully and so consistently. You wanted it so badly. You believed with all your heart God could do it, and yet you've, you've still never seen him answer that prayer. Pray until something happens. Your prayer is heard. And God will move and God will act in his perfect timing. But the number one thing this angel wants to make Zacharias aware of is don't be afraid and let me tell you, your prayer has been heard. And God's going to give you a son. And you're going to call his name John, which means what? God is gracious. That God is gracious. God showing up in this moment wasn't because people did enough good works and offered enough prayers. God showing up in this moment wasn't because Zacharias was a perfect person who deserved God to show up. God showed up in this moment and broke his silence and comes onto the scene to prepare the way to bring his son because one reason and one reason only, God is gracious. We are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift of God not of works, lest anyone should boast. And what is the description that this angel gives of John? But he will be great in the sight of God. Remember our context. Who's the ruler at this time? Herod the Great, by his own definition. And yet God says, no, you want to see a man that's great? I'll tell you a great man, and it's going to be John. And he's not a man that everybody knows. He's out in the wilderness eating locusts. He's a man that has animal skins for clothing. But that's a man who's great. God certainly doesn't view Herod as a great man. But he says, man, you want to know a great man? It's going to be this man, John. And what makes him great is not so much who he is, but whose he is. And that he's set apart with a purpose to prepare the way for the greatest man that would ever come, Jesus. James 4.10 tells us that we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift us up. Herod lifted himself up and he will be brought down. John is a man of humble beginnings. And yet the Lord is going to lift him up. In Matthew 20, 24 through 28 we're given this scenario that takes place following two brothers who bring their mom before Jesus to try and sneak their way into these places of honor and authority and greatness at his right hand and his left hand. And we read beginning in verse 24, when the ten heard about it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. That means they were ticked off. They were irritated. They were greatly annoyed. They're like, really? Really? You two had to bring in your mom to do this. Okay, all right, we see how you're playing. 
But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You want to be great in the eyes of God? Become a servant and a slave of others. If we were to look at the life of John as a resume, you would not stamp on that resume, this is a great man. He's a wanderer, some kind of hippie. He's a vegan. No, I guess not, right? He's eating grasshoppers. But you'd go, what's so special about this guy? Now, God says he's great because he's a man who's serving the Lord and preparing the way for the Messiah. And we're told this description as well about him, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I'll tell you what this morning, Scripture screams out to the truth we so desperately need to be reminded of today, that this child in the womb of Elizabeth had purpose and had value and was a human. To any and all who might try and promote abortion and call themselves a believer of the Lord, who holds Scripture as our ultimate authority, realize this, before John has ever been born, we're told that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, he's been named by God, and he's been given a ministry and a calling, all before he's ever been born. In fact, in this moment, before he's ever been conceived, we're told, hey, here's his name, here's his purpose, here's his calling, all before you even knew he existed. That life has purpose and value, and it's something we need to fight for today. And poor Zacharias in this moment, he suffers from foot and mouth disease that many of us suffer from. We're in a moment we should just shut up and praise the Lord. He speaks out and ruins everything. <laughs> now, no, he doesn't stop what the Lord is going to do. No man can. But what we're going to see here is in a moment that Zacharias should have just believed and trusted the Lord, as we've seen him do so faithfully up to this point, and this moment begins to doubt. Let's look at the process of how Zacharias here allows doubt to slowly destroy and decay any and all hope of what the angel just told him. First, he focuses on himself and his weakness. Then he makes excuses, and then he doubts the word of God. We see the same situation take place with Moses and the burning bush. And here, Zechariah, when he says, I'm an old man, and my wife, she ain't no spring chicken anymore either, Gabriel. And Luke has given us a special detail because as a doctor, he's noting it's not just that they were old in age. She's barren. She is unable physically to have children. And even if she was physically able to have children, she's also got the age going against her now. And as an angel of the Lord appears in the room 
and miraculously speaks these words to Zacharias, all he can do is come up with excuses of why it's not going to happen. He says, I hear you, Gabriel, but here's the thing. Maybe you thought the lot was going to fall on somebody else today, some younger, more spry guy, but let me tell you, I know I look pretty good, but I'm very old, and my wife is just as old, and she's barren. You've got the wrong guy. And in a moment here, when I say that he is destroying and decaying hope, I don't mean he's going to stop what God is going to do, but he has taken away the joy in this moment, the peace that could be his to experience in this moment, and the blessing that comes with faith and trust in this moment. Because remember, his work isn't done as a priest. He's still in the temple. He's still supposed to walk out of there and before all the people declare the blessing of Aaron over them. And what does the angel tell him in this moment? You're going to be silent, unable to speak for nine months for doubting the word of the Lord. You've got nine long months now to think about your lack of faith in this moment, your doubt in the ability of God to intercede in the midst of your weakness. And the blessing that was yours to experience as you walked out of this room is robbed from you because you doubted God in this moment. You know, hope is given this illustration in Hebrews that it's like an anchor to our soul that can keep us grounded and rooted in the midst of a storm. But James talks about when you ask something of the Lord and you doubt and don't have faith, it'll be like you're tossed like a wave. You know what keeps you from being tossed by the waves? The anchor, which is your hope. But in this moment, Zacharias, there's no hope found to say, you know what, I've been faithful this long. I'm going to trust you, Gabriel, even when all the odds are against me. I'm not going to be tossed around right now. No, in this moment, his hope is wavering. His faith is wavering. And there's this doubt that creeps in, and it tosses him. And it robs him of the blessing that was his to offer this day. So he walks out of there, and the people all look excited because they've been wondering what's taking this guy so long. This isn't a long process. You walk in, you pray, you sprinkle the incense, you come out. Where is he? And he finally comes out, and they're thinking, all right, he's going to declare the blessing. And they wait, and I don't know what kind of sign language he's doing in this moment, but they begin to conclude, oh, something's up with Zacharias, and he, he can't talk. He had some kind of experience and there. Something happened, but he can't talk to us. And a moment that should have been marked by celebration and blessing and praise is a moment that is a little confusing and awkward and embarrassing. And the same is true in our lives when we doubt God's work, when we doubt God's word, when we doubt his ability to intercede on our behalf in a moment, and then he does And what do you feel in that moment? Do you feel the excitement and the the celebration or is there this embarrassment that creeps in like, sorry God, I really shouldn't have doubted you. I know I I believed you for a while and then I kind of threw it out the window and I forgot about it, but I'm so thankful now that you did that. But there's, man, that moment is robbed of what it could have been. No, he doesn't stop the Lord. He can't stop God's plan. But he missed out on the blessing in this moment. He finishes his services. He goes home to his wife. She bears a son they name John. 
And if I invite the worship team to come back up this morning, as we prepare our hearts to close in worship and praise this morning, it's important that we realize one final thing, that as I mentioned, the Old Testament, the final book in it, Malachi, ended with silence from God. But the very last word in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, is a curse. That the Old Testament ends with a curse. But if you were to flip in your New Testament to the final book, Revelation, you would see that it ends with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And you have to ask yourself the question, how do we go from the end of the Old Testament marked by a curse to the end of the New Testament marked by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ being with us all because of what happens in the middle, Jesus. Today we saw God breaking the silence and working wonders in what seemed like a hopeless situation. A moment where he took their physical disabilities, the obstacles they faced under a wicked ruler, and used them as a spiritual opportunity and platform to show himself strong on their behalf. And I'm remain, reminded that the same God that did all of this desires to have relationship with us today. You see, without Jesus intervening on our behalf, our story ends in Malachi with a curse. A hopeless situation. A hopeless people. But because of what Jesus did on the cross, we get to read through all the way to Revelation. We get to move forward in the grace of God where there is hope for the hopeless and where a new story is written. My prayer for each and every one of you this morning is no matter how you came here, that you would leave here today confident of God's ability, even in the midst of your disability, to work wonderful things. That his ability can fill you and use you and glorify himself in the midst of everything you're going through because of the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. And that when God shows up in your situation, when God answers your prayer, that what's found on your lips is not doubt in his ability because of your weakness, but a confidence in his ability because of his faithfulness. And that we might share in the blessing that he is bringing about in us and through us in the lives we live today. I don't know your story. I don't know what you're up against. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know how you look at the future, if it's looked at with a hopeful expectation or if you just want it to be all over. But what I do know is that the God we read about in here is the same God today because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that the hope he offered Zacharias and Elizabeth on that day, he offers to you this morning. And so before we close in prayer, I've got to ask you, if you don't know Jesus, do you want to today? Because he's reaching out to you. He's knocking on the door of your heart. And anyone and everyone who would confess of their sins and repent of them can receive salvation. And not because you're good enough. And not because any of us were ever good enough. 
but because what broke the curse of the Old Testament was the grace of God displayed through the work of Jesus on the cross. And that's the invitation that Jesus gives to you today, that all who come to him, who are weary and heavy laden, can find rest, can find forgiveness, can find redemption, that he can make you a new creation in him. Is there anybody this morning that needs to raise their hand and make that decision today? Well, then I'm trusting this morning that the people sitting here together are a part of the family of God. People that have heard that good news and have responded accordingly, have received the work of Jesus on the cross. And my encouragement to you is to not grow weary while doing good. It's to allow the hope that confident expectation of coming good to anchor you no matter what you're experiencing today. And to invite you this morning as we close in worship to sing out with all your heart and boldly declare that salvation that is yours, that hope that is yours, that peace that he brings, even in the light of your circumstances. He's a God who brings good tidings of great joy who has come to dwell among us. It's a reason to sing. Amen? Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you for your reminder this morning that there is hope for the hopeless, that you're a God that makes a way where there was no way. And that even in the midst of our disabilities, our obstacles, you're capable, that you are willing, that you are able. God, I pray for anybody in this room that is struggling to believe that today, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak a better word over them. Lord, where they have listened to the words of the enemy for far too long, that the voice that is silent today is not yours, it's the words of a liar and accuser. that these words would fall on good soil this morning. Words of hope and not despair. Words of truth and not a lie. Words that bring peace and a blessing and not a curse and anxiety. Your word is truth, Lord. May we hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And Lord, what we sing and we celebrate today is that you have chosen to come and dwell with us. Lord, we celebrate that act of grace, that move of love. And God, we pray that our response in worship now would be a sweet-smelling aroma to you. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.